before we get into the message for today, just a brief comment about the uh, gospel reading on page 10. Uh, People often say Jesus did not speak a word on the subject of gay marriage. And and I I would say that a gay marriage is not truly marriage according to Holy Scripture. But Jesus does define marriage in this way as the union of one man and one woman. Now we've made this point before. I'm not really making that point in the sermon, but I want you to be aware that the way Jesus defines marriage, it is one man, one woman for life. And also people sometimes ask the question about polygamy. They'll ask about, well, you know, in the Old Testament, uh, men sometimes had many wives, and so that must be okay as well. But again, uh, when Jesus speaks of marriage, he quotes Genesis that the two not the three or the four or the many who will become one flesh, the two will become one flesh. This is God's institution of marriage. This is marriage as God intended it to be. And again, I'm not speaking on the subject of polygamy either this morning, but I just wanna make that clear in case you or anyone listening uh, online has questions about that. I'm available to talk about that further if you would like. We bow our heads and we pray. Dear Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts be acceptable in your sight through Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen. I was reading recently that uh, for many years, uh, Pepsi-Cola lagged behind Coca-Cola in sales and uh, the executives at Pepsi believed correctly that the iconic shape that curved shape of the Coke bottle had something to do with Coke's success. And and that was in fact true. And so the executives at Pepsi asked this question, how can we reshape our bottle to sell more product and to compete with Coke? And for many years, they worked on that problem, trying to find an answer to that question to, to no avail. But during that time, they had also conducted some market research. And the market research revealed that people will drink as much soda pop as you give them. And so that gave the executives at Pepsi an idea. Maybe the real question is not how do we reshape the bottle? Maybe the correct question is how do we resize the bottle? And so in 1970, Pepsi came out with the two liter bottle. And it flew off the shelves. Pepsi sales increased dramatically and the iconic curved Coke bottle almost became extinct. So instead of asking how can we reshape the bottle, they began asking, how can we we resize the bottle? That is to say, you can't get the right answers if you're asking the wrong questions. Roman numeral one in your sermon outline on page 11 of your bulletin, the Pharisees this morning are asking the wrong question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Is it okay? They believe that divorce is acceptable to God. 
And they cite Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, which is alluded to in your gospel reading this morning in verse 4 about a man writing out a certificate of divorce, giving it to his wife and sending her away. But the context, if, if you read the context of Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 and following, what God is doing there is really placing a restriction, some restraints on divorce, trying to limit it and its ill effects. But point A, although Deuteronomy 24, verse 1 was spoken to restrict divorce, it only encouraged divorce. It only encouraged it. It is a text of concession, not a text of intention. Although the passage in Deuteronomy 24 was intended to make divorce a little more difficult, people began to view that passage as permission to divorce. Letter B, Deuteronomy 24 verse one is not an expression of God's will for marriage, rather it is an expression of our own hardness of heart. Our own hardness of heart. Hardness of heart is what the Old Testament refers to as being stiff-necked, being stiff-necked. And this is not so much rebelling against other people, but it is actually rebelling against God. That's what hardness of heart is. Ezekiel chapter 36 says that God will give his people a new heart and remove their heart of stone, the hard heart. And a new heart is a heart indwelt by the Holy Spirit. When you have a new heart, you turn from your sinful ways and you desire not your will, but God's will for your life. That's a new heart. On the other hand, a heart of stone is a heart which refuses to repent. Instead of turning from sin, a hard heart doubles down on its sin, and it seeks to justify its behavior, make excuses for its behavior. And the Holy Spirit no longer inhabits such a heart. Letter C, hardness of heart seeks loopholes. It seeks loopholes. Now, a loophole is simply a way to escape responsibility. Marriage, on the other hand, is a lifelong commitment to an imperfect person, a person who will disappoint you, a person who will hurt you, a person who will fail to live up to your expectations of him or her. So instead of seeing marriage as a lifelong commitment to an imperfect person, a loophole encourages you to treat the relationship and therefore the other person as disposable. Sadly, divorce may sometimes be necessary, but that does not make it good. In such cases, it may be the lesser of two evils, but it's still evil because it's asking the wrong question. It's asking, how can I escape my responsibility? Where's the exit here? Or what's my excuse going to be? Roman numeral two. We need to hear Jesus's right question in verse three. What did Moses command you? 
Jesus turns our attention away from Deuteronomy 24, and he teaches us about what marriage really is on the basis of Genesis chapter 2, which is where God creates marriage. You know, if you want to learn how to fly a plane, you don't practice crash landings. The problem from Jesus' perspective is that God's people have been entering marriage more with an eye to Deuteronomy 24 than they are paying attention to Genesis chapter 2. We have become more concerned, we the people of God sometimes become more concerned about how to evade our responsibilities rather than how to fulfill our God-given responsibilities. For this reason, Jesus takes us back to the original intent of marriage. Letter A, original intent. You may have heard of this phrase in respect to the U.S. Constitution. There's different ways to interpret the Constitution. I'm not going to debate that today. That's not the point. It's just an illustration of how Jesus interprets Scripture. He goes back to the original intent. When it comes to marriage, we don't go to Deuteronomy 24 to learn how to have a good marriage. We go to Genesis chapter 2. God is the author of marriage, and so what did he intend marriage to be? Well, number one, a husband's allegiance to his wife surpasses his obligations to his father and his mother. And that's saying a lot. That's saying a whole lot. You know, God commands that we're to love our neighbor. But he doesn't command us to honor them. He commands us to honor father and mother. Luther would say correctly that honor includes love, but it goes beyond it. Because when we honor someone, we recognize that they are God's representatives to us. They're given by God to care for us, to provide for us. God stands behind them, you see. That's honor. You recognize that about them. They may be good parents. They may be bad parents. It's beside the point. They're given by God. You honor them. It doesn't mean you have to do everything they say, especially if they command you to do something against God's word. Then you must disobey. But short of that, you respect them as God's representatives. That's honor. And yet Moses writes that a man shall leave behind, that's what the word means in the Hebrew, leave behind his father and mother and be united to his wife. Leave behind means that the man's highest priority is no longer mom and dad, it's the wife. And the same is true for the wife. That is to say, your spouse outranks your parents, as important as your parents are. Point number two, marriage is not a contract. Well, in the eyes of the state, it's a contract, okay? But for our purposes, it's much more than that. Marriage is a new being. It's a new creature. Marriage is a new creation. It's, it's the creation of a new individual. God takes two distinct people and brings them together into one new individual. One new individual. And I suppose it's, I was trying to think of an analogy here. Um, the Holy Trinity is one where you have three distinct persons in one divine unity. Um, but, but also, I think, sexual reproduction. You know, you take 
a cell from a man and a cell from a woman, you bring them together and what you have is a new individual. Marriage is the uniting of two persons into one new person. Point number three, the one flesh union described by Moses is a picture of Christ and his bride, the church. It's a picture of God's love for the world, a picture of Christ and the church. Now, some people will say that Genesis 2 is unrealistic. Those words were spoken before the fall into sin, and as sinners, we always fall short of God's perfect standard, and we do, and so we're, we're gonna fail no matter what. And that's true. But God succeeds where we fail, and that's the gospel. And we, we see this in Ephesians chapter five, where Paul quotes Genesis two. He talks about Christ and the church. He sees Jesus and you and me in Genesis chapter two. Paul writes these words in Ephesians five. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be united to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, Paul writes, but I'm speaking about Christ and the church, duh. It all points to him. That is to say, when God instituted marriage in Genesis chapter two, he'd already foreseen our failures and he had already provided the remedy for our failures and that is the forgiveness of our sins through the cross of our savior, Jesus Christ. It was all foreseen and predicted in Genesis two. So Genesis 2 is not unrealistic at all. When you understand Genesis 2 in light of Christ and his cross, it becomes the most realistic way to picture marriage because it frames marriage and divorce with the forgiveness of sins that comes through Christ and Christ alone. Letter B. God's original intent for marriage is not idealism, but relational realism. Relational realism. Everyone should understand their marriage vows in the following way, quote, I take you to be my spouse, knowing full well that you will let me down, you will fail me, you will hurt me and disappoint me. Nevertheless, I choose you knowing that I will require at least as much forgiveness from you as you will need from me, end quote. That is marriage. That's relational realism, and it's, it flows from Christ and the cross. Marriage is a solemn commitment to an imperfect person. And my friends, if you cannot tolerate disappointment, if you cannot handle being hurt, please don't get married because you're not marrying an angel. You're marrying a fellow sinner. And I guarantee you'll be disappointed. <laughs> I guarantee you'll be hurt. But when Christ and the gospel are the foundation of that relationship, there will be confession of sin, there will be forgiveness of sin, and there will be reconciliation. But what if you have been involved in a failed marriage? What if there was no confession of sin, no forgiveness of sin, 
no reconciliation in your marriage. Further, what if you've been not only divorced, but remarried after the divorce? You know, Jesus says in our gospel lesson, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Those are hard words. They're hard words to read, they're hard words to hear. Because we live in a real world. And Jesus is more strict on the subject of marriage and divorce than anyone I know. He was more strict about these things, divorce and remarriage, than any other rabbi of his day. So what if you're guilty of both? What do you do? Well, first, let me tell you what you don't do. You don't dumb down the words of Jesus. Please, don't do that. You don't try to change his words or blunt their force, soften them in some way, massage them. Too many churches today do that. No, you are to hear them. I am to hear them. We are to take them to heart. Let those words sink into you. Let his words have its way with you and they will produce in you a godly sorrow that leads to repentance and maybe they already have done that in your heart. Thank God. Then you do what I do and you do what every guilty sinner does regardless of whether or not you've been divorced and remarried. We look to the cross we lay our sins at the feet of Jesus Christ no matter where we've been or what we've done. Divorced or not, all of us need the forgiveness of sins every day. And that forgiveness has already been accomplished for you at the cross. You are forgiven today through your faith in Jesus Christ. You are forgiven today through your baptism into Christ. You are forgiven through your faithful participation in the body and blood of our Lord in the Holy Supper. My friends, none of us will ever stand before God on the basis of our excuses. So forget the excuses. We will stand before God clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ who lived, died, and rose for us all. Christ alone is our confidence. Christ alone is our security. He alone is our comfort today and on the last day. In Jesus' name, amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.